However, Uh-oh. I do have a book to recommend to you. It's the book of Romans. Yes. So, <laughs> I really want to give it my high recommendations. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a book, book called Romans. And it's by a guy named Paul. And he wrote to a church in Rome. Um, I know none of you have heard of this book before. So, this is going to be new to you. But... We're going to do an overview. I, even though maybe you know the book of Romans, maybe you have some familiarity with Romans, I really genuinely believe there's some benefit, a huge benefit in doing overviews of books where you're getting the high-level look at what there is to say. Also, I do have a little bit of a sort of side issue that I want to touch on because, it, because it's so important in Romans. So that actually might hang us up more than anything else. We'll see how far that gets us. Yes, Jake. Do you have or would you think about a Uh, I have two commentary recommendations for the book of Romans. One is Douglas Moo has a very good commentary on Romans. It's pretty modern. It's, I think he read it about 10 years ago. It's large. It's technical. It gets very in-depth. It's good. John Murray wrote a commentary on it, I think, in the 1950s. That's fantastic. It's still really good. But I also don't know if it's still in print. Um, because it's for the New Testament International Commentary Series, and they seem to keep updating those. So I have a copy from, like, the 70s or the 80s, and I won't give it to anybody. You can borrow it, but you can't have it. R.C. Sproul has a... So R.C. Sproul's commentary on Romans is not like a line-by-line exposition. His would be what you call a homiletical commentary. So it's as if he preached a sermon series on Romans, and then they printed it. Um, and those are different, right? You're going to use those very differently. When I preach a, ser- a, ser- uh, a sermon series, I usually have a homiletical, and then I also have a technical commentary to go along with it. So I try to balance between those two. Yeah. John MacArthur has one that's not like super technical, but it's not homiletic like RCs. Yeah. I think. But I was looking for. Yeah, and probably for somebody who, if you're not looking for a really, 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 like, let's go deep into the meaning of this Greek word, then, yeah, probably Sproul is, it would be a good one to go with. or Yeah, and I, I haven't read MacArthur, so I won't say one way or the other. But um, when we talk about the Book of Romans, this is a very important book to Christian history. I know that, that I'm supposed to say that, maybe. <laughs> It, it, it like comes, there's like a rule somewhere that you have to mention Martin Luther when you talk about the book of Romans. But I'm going to give you a good Luther quote. This is, Rome, this, is, this is Luther talking about Romans. He says, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Uh, that's high praise for the book of Romans. He says we should read it every day. Uh, we should occupy ourselves with the book of Romans every day and ponder its words. Um, now, I always think you have to choose what you're going to read every day, and you have to read something. And I, I could imagine a day where you don't read Romans, but you know, Luther says do it. Um, so Luther has very high praise for, for Romans. Uh, it's the book that converted Augustine, right? God used this book to convert Augustine. He reads Romans 13, 14. 
Um, perhaps you've heard the story. Uh, he's in the garden and he does have a New Testament. He has been thinking upon religious issues. He is struggling with his own goofy theology that he's raised up in. And he's trying to work through these things. And he hears these children in a garden singing, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine picks up his New Testament and his eyes fall upon Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine says that the Lord used that verse to change his life and open his eyes to things of the spirit. And, you know, church history's changed because of these two men being changed by Romans. Yeah, Benjamin. I found out that some commentators say it's the gospel uh, of God. Romans is the gospel of God. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that statement? Uh, well, our, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Well, I mean, the whole book, it's called the instead of the gospel of mm. Luke, the gospel of Matthew. Well, Washi Scroll himself says that. Oh, okay. The gospel. Not, is it, he's saying it's literally the name of the Ro- of Romans? Yeah, he calls it the gospel of God. Uh, well, that's a good summary of what the name of what Romans is. Um, I don't know that it was ever called that in church history, but I'm not going to disagree because that's what Romans is, is laying out the gospel. Um, this is a book, it's the centerpiece of, of Augustine's conversion. It's the centerpiece of Luther's conversion. Uh, as a monk, what does Luther do? He's studying the book of Romans. He's actually teaching a class on it. He's teaching through this book. And he says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered parad- paradise itself through open gates. That's what he's talking about when he says, I read the book of Romans. I studied this book and that's what it did to me. Um, John Wesley don't hear John Wesley talked about very much by me. I need to give him a little more, uh, a little more attention probably. Uh, John Wesley was converted by attending a meeting where someone was reading Luther's commentary on Romans. Preface to the book of Romans is published by the Methodist Church. It's one of their core documents. Very nice. He says, my heart was strangely warmed. Um, which if you're a Methodist, you've already heard that many times before. Um, but um, from a personal perspective, this is the book that God used to change me. This is the book that God used to convert me because you've, I've already talked about evidence and studying the resurrection and all those things. I was convinced by that and I, but I needed to know what God demanded of me and reading the book of Romans was me, was, was the way that God changed me where he said, this is not about knowing historically that someone rose from the dead. This was the book that convinced me that I was a sinner and that the reason Jesus came was not so that I could study somebody's resurrection, right? This is a book about you have a responsibility before God to answer for your sin. And this was the book that showed me that Christ came so that I didn't have to answer to God for my sin. Uh, so very important book, just personally, just uh, very largely, I, I could not praise the book of Romans enough. Um, it's not hard to understand why this book has been so impactful because in, the, in a sense, what is Romans about? Romans is the fullest, most careful explanation of what the gospel is, what it means to be forgiven, and how it is that God can forgive. I love the Romans partly because Paul is dealing with the actual difficulty of forgiving somebody. We, we miss the fact that forgiving somebody makes God look like a bad judge because he's letting somebody go free who definitely committed sin. 
And he reckons with that. Paul does. He reckons with that exact issue in this book and he answers it, right? How can I be saved and how can God not be unjust for saving me? And so uh, he doesn't just say believe in Jesus, even though that is a correct answer, right? He doesn't just say believe in Jesus. Instead, he goes very in depth in what it means uh, and how it means to live a life of faith. And so this is this book is is important in that unlike the other letters of Paul, uh, we're going to spend two classes on it. The other ones, we're going to try to go through every book as quick as we can. We're going to take double the time for Romans. Uh, also, easily the most doctrinally heavy of Paul's letters. Um, we're going to be more detailed in our overview of Romans than we will be, say, Galatians even. Even though Galatians is a great book, we're going to go more in depth with this one. Um, authorship. I'm not going to waste time on authorship. The author is Paul. Um, I have a great book in my library called New Testament Introduction by D.A. Carson. And if you are greatly captivated by the authorship of any of the New Testament books, you can look through that and you can see all the goofy arguments that people have had over the years. There is no question that Paul is the author of Romans. Um, so we won't waste any more breath on that. Uh, the date of writing. Paul is a Christian by 33 A.D., 34 A.D., till his death in 64 A.D., Sometime in that time period. <laughs> Sometime in 30-year window. Now, there's a little bit of help that we can find here. He, he greets people in the conclusion of the letter. If you go to Romans 16, you see some people that he knows, that he has connections with. And so we can tell from that he's probably in Corinth when he writes Romans. So he's sitting somewhere in Corinth doing something. We don't know what. And he writes Romans. And... Paul made one more, more than one visit to Corinth. So we don't exactly know which one it would be. But if we piece things together, I think it seems that this is a later missionary journey of Paul. Probably this is written 57, 58 AD. But even that is approximate because we don't know every trip that he made to Corinth. Uh, audience. So written to the Church of Rome. This is written to a congregation. This is, it says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So this is a letter that would have arrived at a church and it would have been publicly read for all to hear, probably during a worship service. Think about it. This is the time when everybody's gathering together. Uh, just, like, just like us, we're scattered all over the city. We all live in different places. If there's something that you want everybody at Evergreen Presbyterian Church to hear, when are you going to read it? You're going to read it on Sunday. Uh, or you're going to have a special called service or something like that. Um, there are at least four purposes to this letter, four things going on that Paul needs to deal with, that he needs to answer. So the first one is, it's a theological introduction to Paul and his gospel. He's writing to the Church of Rome. It seems by this point he has not had a chance, doesn't just seem, he hasn't had a chance to be in Rome yet. And yet he can tell the Christians in Rome because he's heard from them. They need to hear the gospel. They need to know what is taught in the gospel of God. And so he wants them to also know who he is. And what he believes, what he's about. And so he mentions multiple times in the letter how much he wants to come to Rome. Each time his attempts have been thwarted. And so that's one of the first purposes. So that you know, so that they can know Paul and so that they can know the gospel. Second purpose of the letter, the Romans are dealing with pushback against them. They're facing theological slander that they have to answer. This letter is going to give them tools to respond to exactly what's being said about them. Uh, what kind of slander? Well, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, do we overthrow the faith by this law? So in other words, um, 
In other words, is the law of Christ opposed to faith? What's the relationship between faith and works? How is somebody, somebody supposed to live like that? Um, Romans chapter 6, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So again, this is an argument that gets leveled against the Christians. If you preach grace to people, they're going to behave however they want. And they're going to they're shipwreck the faith or they're going to break God's law. They're going to bring shame upon the gospel. Um, how does this gospel that you preach, Paul, keep people from just having a license to live however they want? That's one of the purposes of the letter. Um, charges, in other words, of antinomianism, which means lawlessness. Uh, third, to build up his apostolic calling. He makes the case in this letter that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he's, he's laying out for them who he is and the fact that he's been faithful to being an apostle. And then one fourth purpose that I think we may sometimes miss, and it's because this gets brought in so late in the letter. But he actually says that he's looking for assistance of, from the Romans as he gets ready for a mission to Spain. Now, as far as we know, he may never have actually been able to make it to Spain. But he's, he's talking to them and saying, hey, when I come through, please be prepared to support my missions work as I go on from Rome up to the northwest to Spain. So he needs financial assistance. He's letting these churches know he may be coming through. I mean, otherwise, what happens? He shows up one day and says, hey, you guys have some money for me? Um, and he doesn't want to do that. He wants to lay the groundwork, let them know who, who they would be supporting by sending him this. You know, our missionaries will oftentimes write to us. And sometimes as a missionary, you've got a hard job to do. I'm going to get a few minutes in this service to tell you about myself. And how do I convince you that I'm going to be worth supporting? And so in some ways, I almost wonder is if a big part of this letter is just, um, is just getting ready to raise funds, <laughs> which would be a really practical and interesting reason for the book of Romans to exist. Um, so let's talk about themes and key verses. Again, you do two weeks on the book of Romans. If I was preaching a preaching series on the book of Romans, it would last so long. Like, that's why I haven't done it yet. And that's why if I ever do it, you should all just gear yourselves up because this book is so rich that going verse by verse is, is a worthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. So we won't do that. We're, we're overviewing. And so the first thing I want you to know is the first seven verses of the book are the content of the gospel. So if you look at verses one through seven, in verse one, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus. He's called an apostle. He, he mentions in verse 2 that the gospel was promised beforehand. So he wants them to understand that, that the message he's teaching is not innovative. He's not an inventor. He's not creative. Uh, he is, he's just saying what God has been saying for years. That's what he's talking about. This was promised beforehand. I'm not an innovator. He says that the gospel comes through the son who's a descendant of David, raised from the dead, just look at how he just lays it all out. Uh, verse 5, Jesus is the source of grace for those who have faith. And then verse 7, he says those who trust in Christ are called of Jesus Christ. So even there you have this idea of calling God's initiative. The first seven verses here are painting the whole story of salvation and how someone can have it. Even if you had just a fragment of the book of Romans, if you only had the first seven verses, you would have this incredibly rich telling of how we can have salvation, where it comes from, and who it's in. So it's, who was it that was talking to me? Uh, I think I was talking to Charlie once, and Charlie, uh, Charlie's not in here, is he? 
Charlie was saying that, you know, when uh, when journalists are taught to write a story that at the very beginning they're supposed to put as much as they can or at least the best, most important, biggest piece of information at the front. And Paul almost is like a journalist here, right? He's laying out for you the thing that if you don't read the rest of the letter, at least read this. And so that's what he does. And so verses 16 to 17, he says, he says that the gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Just think of the content of that verse. Just think of how much is crammed in there, right? If you learn the gospel, you are learning something that saves souls, right? You're not learning an abstract theological angels dancing on the head of a pen type thing, even though all those things are actually relevant if you think about them much. Um, he's, he's saying that this is as practical as it gets. It's about saving someone's soul. And so for, for Paul, the gospel is so important because it's about being saved or not saved. It's about being rescued or not rescued. And, and then he says that the key is actually faith. He says faith in Christ is the thing that, that you want to aim somebody at. And he wants the Romans to know that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So he's the centrality of believing in Christ. Then, now we're not going to go, we're not going to be so tight. Now we're going to kind of broaden out a little bit. If you look from verse 18 all the way to the end of chapter 3, all of this is Paul laying out the need for righteousness. He's laying out the need for us to have righteousness when we stand before God. Um, He introduced the concept of God's wrath in verse 18. So if you look in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, talking about God's wrath is not popular today. It's um, not exactly the best way to draw a crowd. Unless they want to just, you know, sometimes people want to see a car crash. Maybe if you like go, you want to talk about the wrath of God and see how that goes in public, you, that'll be an interesting result. But generally speaking, um, God's wrath is not a popular topic. People want to think of the nice things about God. They want to think about only the positive things about God. Um, and yet, you know, if I'm driving in the car and I see my child doesn't have a seatbelt on, I'm going to tell them I actually give this lecture. Do you know what would happen if I were to push on the brakes? Uh, what would it be like to have your face go through the windshield, son? And like you'd talk to them about that. I don't, that doesn't mean be very popular with them, and they might get tired of hearing it, but they usually keep the seatbelt on because they heard what I said. And that's what Paul's doing, right? He's warning, here's what happens. This is what can happen. Uh, again, not popular. Um, a lot of people want God to sort of be like a friendly grandpa, And Paul says, no, don't pretend that God's wrath isn't real. Instead, you need to face it and you need to figure out what to do about God's wrath against you instead of sticking your head in the sand and telling yourselves nice things about God. Um, And actually, there are wonderful things to know about God, but they aren't known apart from acknowledging that his wrath is real. Um, But this is a really important warning for us too, right? Because the air around us just screams, Make up your own idea about God. Make your own idea about worship up. And Paul's approach is different. He says, look, I don't like the wrath of God any more than you do. But the answer is see the danger and face it like a fair-minded person should and figure out what to do about it. So face the, the danger. 
Uh, don't ignore it. Um, you know, if there was a comet coming for Earth, the way that you deal with that comet is not to start playing video games and hope that it goes away. Um, that's the 21st century in a nutshell, though. Let's, let's play video games and hope that it goes away. I say that as someone who loves video games, but people try to ignore trouble. People try to pretend that these things aren't real. And, you know, in the same way, Paul is saying, look, the comet is heading for us. And that comet is not a comet. It's the wrath of God. It's coming. It is real. And God is angry at sin. And we must have an answer. We have to have some way that we're going to deal with this. So the first chapter of Romans is starting in verse 18 is Paul making the case. The comet is real. We are in danger. We need to acknowledge it. Right. If you don't if you don't do that, then you're going to wonder why the rest of this book exists. If you, don't, if you haven't uh, gotten the fact that the wrath of God is coming, then everything else is just superfluous. You're like, why? You guys just need to do something else. And if, the, if you believe and know that the wrath of God is real, then you're going to have a very different uh, motivation. How do we know the wrath of God is real? Well, Paul makes an argument. And his argument is even people who haven't got the Bible know that God is, know, knows that God is and they know what God expects of them. This is the argument he makes in chapter 1. Uh, if you go to chapter 1, you look at verse 20. He makes this natural law argument. He says, you have humans without the written law, and even they have a sense of moral obligation. He says, uh, his invisible attributes, his divine power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So Paul's point is none of you will get to stand before God and say, I didn't know. You know, you don't get to be like Bertrand Russell and say, you didn't give enough evidence. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets to do that. Um, And so so, uh, God's going to instead say, you were surrounded. You were surrounded every day. You were surrounded by my works. You were surrounded by, at every step, by all of these testimonies that I was real and you lived in constant denial. Um, that's his argument that he's, that he's making here. And he's saying even people who don't have the Bible and haven't touched this book, they haven't gotten anywhere close to it, they've not turned the pages, they feel guilty all the time and they wonder why. They, 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 they feel like something's wrong with them and no one can explain it to them. And... You know, he's, he's saying that, that the testimony of God is everywhere. And he says there is sufficient revelation to condemn us for violating his law. Now, I want to throw in something here, which is saving faith only comes through the knowledge of Christ. So here's what happens. Nature reveals to us the problem. It reveals to us God. It reveals to us his existence. It reveals to us our guilt. There's a testimony within that we know that something's wrong with us. We know that we've done something wrong and we don't know how to wash our hands. But it doesn't tell us the way of salvation, right? So you look out at nature. You look at your own heart. You're never going to see a message that saves you. All you're going to see is more condemnation everywhere that you go. And you're going to really start to hate the creator, because all you're going to feel is condemnation all the way around. You just Hopelessness, guilt, that's what pervades your world. And so if you don't have the gospel being given to you that, like, that Paul is going to lay out for us here, then that's where the story stops. It just stops at sorrow, misery, guilt, condemnation. Why do I feel this way? And so natural revelation can show us the Lord, but it can't show us salvation. That's why you need this book. (laughs) So then you go to verse 21. It says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, 
What does that look like? Well, he spells it out, right? He says in verse 22, they became fools. Verse 23 says they worshiped idols shaped like creatures. This is something you would have seen in the Roman world. Um, It looks like verse 24, hearts filled with lust toward anything and everything. Um, uh, Verse 25, they worship created things, but they don't worship the creator. Uh, The very one that they ought to be worshiping is not being honored, not being worshiped. Um, And then in verse 26 and 27, I'm going to address verses 26 and 27 because it's just so, it's necessary. It's necessary for the moment that we live in. He says, he specifically addresses the things people did to each other and with each other as evidence of God's wrath. So he's like, look, you wonder if God's wrath is real. He's like, you can see it playing itself out in people's lives. And he specifically points to homosexual behavior. Uh, He specifically says, I'm going to read these two verses just because what I'm going to say here builds off of them. And it might actually be all we have time for after I get done. But he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So you don't have to wonder whatever he's about to talk about. You don't have to wonder whether Paul's neutral about it. He says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, Now, just because I, it's just important to say, he's going to list a lot of sins. So he's not just stopping here. He's not camping out on this. This is not the only sin that Paul deals with. But Paul clearly like gives us two verses here where he's talking about homosexual acts. He's talking about homosexual behavior. And he's saying, look, if you want to know whether the wrath of God is, is real, look at what happens when people do things that are contrary to nature. Look at the consequences for their lives. Look what happens to them. It's not happy. It's, it's, it's painful. It's, it's bad. There are things that really happen to their bodies that you wouldn't want to happen to your body. Um, he, he does single it out. I, I, think, I think what you have with Paul is you have a guy who's been around the Roman world. He is, he's a Roman citizen. He's been in Ephesus. He's been in Philippi. He's been in Corinth. Um, you could just stop there at Corinth because Corinth is a place where there would have been a tremendous amount of, of homosexual behavior. Uh, this is all just history. This is just stuff that we know about the Roman world. It would have been very common. Uh, for Paul, this is an evidence that his readers see around them that humans are in fact living against the grain of God's universe. Now, there have been very confused ways that this passage has been handled by some. There are some people who want to say, well, really what Paul is doing here, he's not condemning homosexual behavior. They say he's condemning a particular expression of homosexual behavior where one partner dominates the other. In essence, they want to say that Paul is condemning homosexual rape here. So, he, so there are some who want to say, this is just, uh, this, Paul is fine with same-sex consensual relationships. He just has issues with homosexual rape. And that's just not what Paul's doing. Because notice what Paul, Paul isn't talking about anything like that. He says that these men were consumed with passion for one another. Yeah. Right? So it's mutual. There's, there's an exchange happening here. 
And, and for Paul, this is the thing he's talking about. He's actually just talking about homosexual desire and behavior. And so this isn't rape. Um, he's talking about any and all sexual passions between men uh, or between women and, and women. And, and so in other words, God didn't make the human body and he didn't make the human soul to do that, to live that way. And he says, this is a result of the fall. It's an evidence of the fall, right? It's, it, it shows us that the fall is real. The fact that people do self-destructive things to themselves like this. Now, I'm going to take an excursus. And when I say excursus, what I mean is, I'm not talking about Paul here. And I'm not talking about what he addresses. Instead, I want to actually talk about something that I think this is probably as good a place as any. But it's the question of sexual identity as an idea. Um, I didn't bring the book with me, but Carl Truman has a, a brand new book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a big book. It's a fat book. It's not the kind of book that I would tell an average church member to read. But he got complaints that the book was too complicated. <laughs> and so he, he went and he wrote a new version of it. He didn't abridge it, but he wrote a new version of it that just takes his argument from the big book and it makes it smaller and easier to follow. And it's called Strange New World. And I have a copy and I'm about four chapters in. I finished the big book and I loved it. But again, I wouldn't really recommend it to you guys unless you have like a background in philosophy and, and stuff like that. Um, but Strange New World, he lays out these arguments and he's addressing specifically in that book this question of how is it that we as modern people got to a moment where the sentence, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, makes sense to somebody. Because he says, if you had gone back to his father's generation, the sentence wouldn't have made sense. And if you went back a generation before that, ad infinitum into human history, that sentence wouldn't have made sense. So he's telling the story of how we got there. I've actually heard people who uh, agree with transgenderism and they actually like the book because they say it's a pretty good telling of how we got to this moment, which is interesting to hear somebody that you're disagreeing with and they're saying, yeah, you got it right. And so here's what he says, and I'm going to be very simplistic in how I put this. But you're going to notice Paul in his letters, he deals with categories of sin in word and thought and in deed. But there is this modern category of sexual identity that is absent from the writing of Paul. Now, Paul tells us in some places that we should have our identity rooted in Christ, that we should reckon ourselves a certain way. He says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. So he, he, it's not that Paul has a problem with us talking about ourselves having an identity, but Paul um, is, is very intentional that our identity is rooted in Jesus and not in ourselves and not our desires. But we live in a moment where somebody's desires are considered to be part of, of their self. So if you have feelings or urges or desires or preferences, that's considered part of you. That, that it's considered you. Uh, if you desire something, that is not just something you wanted. It's something that's you, you see. And so Truman tells the story of how we get there. And here's what he says. He says around the 1800s, people start thinking differently about themselves. It used to be that somebody would think of themselves in terms of what they did, what their rule was in life. Um, my last name is Parker. I researched the last name. Apparently the last name came from people who were park keepers in England. And so our job was to keep the woods and keep the, the, the probably they didn't have parks like we have, but they were, their job was to maintain forests and things like that. And so that's where our name came from. And, uh, you know, we don't have anyone in here named Shoemaker, I don't think, but guess where that name came from? You know, people, people's identities were bound up with what they did and what their life was like. And 
that kind of became who they were. But around the 1700s, you have writers like Rousseau who start writing and Rousseau would say things like, if you want to know the real me, then you have to listen to me, to my story of who I am. And he would talk about his, he would just drone on and on. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Rousseau, but don't read Rousseau. Like, it's just, you're reading this guy's diary and it's not like Augustine's confessions where like there's good stuff in here. Like Rousseau's just wants you to know about his visits to prostitutes and things like that. And Rousseau is like, this is the real me in this letter. To, to read this is to know Rousseau. And that is a new way of thinking. Um, you always had, auto, you had autobiographies from like Augustine, you know, in the history. But by the 1700s, he's saying, to know me, you must know my desires. If you know me, if you know what I am like, then you, then you know me. And that's who I am. And so he starts identifying himself with his feelings. And you have more who follow after Rousseau who do the same. So by the time you get to the 1900s, you have this, you have this way of thinking that says you are your feelings. Whatever you feel is what you are. And that's very much embedded in the way people think. But here's the thing. It doesn't get applied to just yet. It doesn't get applied to the category of sexual desire. Guess who we have to thank for sexual desire being seen as something being very central to human beings? Freud. Sigmund Freud. Freud. So Sigmund Freud comes in and he tells you everything you need to know about a person is bound up in their sexual desires. Whatever it is that they desire in terms of sex, that is the true person. And you really know that person if you know what they really desire. And so Freud makes sex central to who a person is. And when you piggyback that on top of what's already been growing, which is an increasing sense in which people go, I am my own feelings. You can imagine how we get to a moment like we live in today, where if somebody has a sexual desire and you tell them, well, that's wrong. What happens? They say, why do you hate me? Right. Why do you. So they won't say, well, we have a disagreement over morality. Right. (laughs) It would be nice if the conversation could take place on that level. But rather, it can't be a rational conversation because the person has been trained to believe that their feelings are them and their sexual feelings are them. And that's why now when you go to the doctor, you know, it'll say she, her under the name tag or they, them, if you're being served by two people, right? Like, um, that was a joke. Um, it wasn't very funny. <laughs> Everybody's in this room like, I hope I don't get fired from my job for being in this room while he's saying these things. Um, <laughs> so, but that's, that's what happens, right? Sex becomes central to who we are. Our desires become central to who we are. You combine those two things together And if you have a a man who feels out of place or a man who feels that he might be a woman, then he is. So you can have pregnant men. And and, uh, you can't, by the way, I'm just saying this is the 21st century. This is the 21st century. This is how people think. So here is the moment where... What what it all comes down to. We use these labels today. And the labels are used to categorize the feelings. And and so then we we get terms like gay, bisexual, transsexual, straight, and so on. And after reading Truman's book, I'm actually convinced of this. I'm actually convinced that uh, 
it is as Christians, if we use those labels, we are buying into all of these categories that are totally screwed up. I actually think that calling myself a straight man is not actually appropriate. Because what do you do when you say I'm a straight man? Well, you're saying, well, I buy into all the categories. I buy into all of this, all of this Freudian expression that's being used. And so you're actually not helping things by buying into the categories. Um, is that a good way to live? Is that an easy way to live? I'm not sure. <laughs> because everybody demands that you have a label and everyone demands that you have something that you call yourself. And so I don't think there's an easy way out of it, actually. I don't think that it's really possible. If somebody uh, wants to know about you and what you're like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure there's a quick way to be able to answer their questions. But I do think that there is... Um, you know, there's no such thing as gay. There's nothing as straight. There's no such thing as trans. There is just natural or unnatural. There's sin. There's virtue. Um, that, that's the category. That's the way that Paul talks about these things. I think, I think having Christian and Pauline categories for thinking about ourselves is better and more sound than using these modern Freudian categories. Um, it may be fair just to say, well, I'm not a Freudian if somebody asks you if you're straight, you know. You're like, I'm not a Freudian, but I, I, I do believe in sin and, and virtue. Um, anyway, take all of that for what it's worth. Paul's not talking about that, but everybody in the modern moment thinks, uh, thinks that um, there is something here about gay people. Actually not. What Paul is actually addressing is homosexual behavior and homosexual desire. He's not talking about gay people here because for Paul, there's no such thing as gay people. There are Romans, who, men who sleep with Roman men and there are Roman women who sleep with Roman women, but that's not who they are. That's what they do. And they face the consequences for it when they do it. Did that, is that coherent? Yes. All right. I, <laughs> all right. Glad to hear that. Um, you know, it's great. We're out of time. So... <laughs> I was actually going to say, instead of going further into Paul's letter, let me actually take questions, and I can't. So we'll just have to talk afterwards if you have questions. I'm going to pray, um, and then we can get the kids, and then you can ask me questions if you want to, and uh, we'll maybe have to have three lessons on Romans. I don't know. <laughs> um, I didn't have to give that talk, by the way, when I, when I taught this material uh, two years ago in Mississippi. Uh, it would have been handy to, but I wouldn't have been able to spell it out for you the way I did. So I'm grateful for Truman and his book. That was very helpful to me. The name of the easier one is called Strange New World. And the one before that? The big one is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yeah. What was Truman's first name? Carl. And uh, the seniors at St. Stephen's are actually reading The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the big book. So... The seniors. So maybe you can just take that as like challenge accepted and go for it and try to read it. I really recommend reading Strange New World. And then if you, and then if you find yourself being like, I can follow this, then, then read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Because you'll understand his overall argument and you'll go deeper into it. And he'll be able to make the case more that this really is how we got here. Um, anyway, we'll have to save Romans for, uh, for next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father... We do live in a strange moment. We do live in a strange new world. And so I pray that you would help us to be wise, help us to be shrewd, help us to understand the moment we live in. Help us also to be careful not to reinforce things that are foreign to you.
Help us rather to think biblically. Help us to think like your scripture tells us to. Help us to think well about ourselves. Uh, Help for us not to be caught in confusion or reinforce confusion. Uh, Instead, give us biblical mindsets. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love those who are caught up in confusion. Help us to love those and have compassion on those around us, Lord, who are struggling. Even with these issues of human sexuality, they live in a strange, confusing moment. And in many cases, Lord, this is stuff that was taught and that has really given even more confusion. So would you help us not to be combative, but help us to be winsome and kind and thoughtful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.